I'm in my old hood. I used to live on a on Broadway right next to the McDonald's for 10 years. So, oh, oh, like two blocks down. Right by yeah, Shakespeare yeah, yeah. and Company. Yeah. yeah. In fact, I got... I love that that's the landmark. I got out of the train and walked the wrong direction because the neighborhood has changed so much. I didn't recognize anything. I'm like, wait, I'm walking towards Third Avenue. I'm a crazy bird then. There's a Target on 14th Street now. I heard that. And a Trader Joe's. Did you see the facade with the fake CBGBs on it? They like recreated the old <sighs> neighborhood a, through, yeah. the, through the veneer of Target. You know what we need? That. <laughs> that's what we need. The CBGB target. So you were just, you were telling me that you were missing the press conference right now. And, and I, and I think it's funny that you feel bad that you were missing it. I'm missing the press. Well, it's always, you know, when you take the train and your phone doesn't work and then you yeah. get off the subway and you are, it's, your phone is full of text messages as though a loved one has died. We call that blowing up. Yes, it is blowing up. It's like, are you watching this? Like there's this code in shorthand where it's like, I'm not watching this. I'm not sure what this is. And then so then I got onto my Twitter feed and I was like, oh, my God, there is literally Trump has become the Wicked Witch of the West. Just like I'm melting. But talking about Syria. Do you enjoy the respite, though? At least like having, a you know, 20 minutes away from having to focus on that? Sometimes I'm just mad I miss it all, which is why I'm a terrible boss. It's like, don't aren't you guys into all of this? And they're like, no, we're actually triggered. And I'm like, yeah, me too, but. <laughs> I mean, it is technically part of your job, right? Well, it is part of my job. And I, I'm one of the fortunate ones who has an outlet so I can, I can absorb it. And then I can, without any boundaries, which is what is so amazing about having this nonprofit, I can ingest it, spit it back out in a way that I think is catharsis for everyone without anybody telling me I've gone too far. How is that part of the nonprofit? Just your platform online? I mean, I have a nonprofit that is basically comedians and writers and activists and filmmakers who have created through our art a rapid response juggernaut with which to take in the information, especially around and mostly around abortion access, reproductive rights. Where we're living right now, all of this is about abortion and no one's talking about abortion. In fact, if you do talk about abortion, even supposed allies like Tom Perez and, you know, there's certain Democrats who are like, it's a wedge issue. You know, there's other things to focus on. This is where we can compromise. And it's like, oh, I see the body of people with uteruses. We're capable of compartmentalizing too. Like we can also, we can focus on that and also focus on other things. Yeah. But we should be talking about this. Yeah. Um, I could probably tell any progressive who's a really good progressive and considers themselves like actively pro-choice five things that they have no idea that's happening in the universe around abortion access because it's never reported. And part of that is because if they see something fly past their desk about like a weird law that's happening in Indiana or Texas, they go, well, that's a regional story or a local story. It's not for me. And it's like, no, the law that they dropped is being dropped in state legislatures all over the country. So it's actually a national story that you choose to not look into who are the forces behind all this anti-abortion stuff. And it's pretty fascinating when you see that they are the ones who are, they have their big bloody signs in their protests. And, and that oftentimes puts activists off because they're like, I just don't want to get into the fray of those people. Yep. But when you show up at one of their rallies, they talk about abortion for about three minutes. And then they talk about LGBTQ folks, immigrants, feminists, brown people. 
and they go way, way in on nothing to do with abortion, but they know those signs will keep people away. It's fascinating. I get the vibe that there's this kind of long-term play happening right now with all of these sort of the, these state-level issues, where the plan is to sort of invoke all of these and then pull the rug out on a national level. Yeah. And then we're going to be relying on all these horrible states' rights issues. Well, and what's fascinating about it is that these state Supreme Courts, a lot of them that are conservative, will take any case... No matter how weird it is, if a law gets passed and it gets challenged and the the state Supreme Courts will take it just so they can write a dissenting opinion of a crazy law that isn't upheld. But to have those things on the books, you know, when you start, especially when it comes to, you know, the issue that I care most about, which is, you know, abortion access and reproductive rights. Every time you pass a fetal homicide law or a law that says you can prosecute a person who's pregnant if their fetus dies and it finds out they were using. For example, that person can go to jail. You know, every time we define a non-viable fetus as a person, that means our country believes that Roe isn't the law of the land, that a non-viable fetus with a heartbeat at six weeks becomes a person. What happens if that gets all the way through a federal judicial system that Trump is stacking and gets to the Supreme Court? That's how Roe v. Wade gets overturned. Even in the case of if they were to overturn Roe and that abortion becomes a state's rights issue, there's four states right now that have a mechanism in place in their state constitution that bans abortion instantly. Mm. And then we go through the next process of not only can a state decide whether or not it wants to provide abortion to its citizens, we then live in a country that decides, does abortion remain legal, period. Do you think that people have become complacent because it's Roe has been the law for so long that people whose lives these abortion laws are going to affect most directly for their entire lives roe has been around i think people are complacent for a couple of reasons one i think that they don't understand what's going on and two i think that sadly men in our society have asked women to solve this problem it has not been in any way shape or form talked about enough to have it be understood the profundity of it as an economic justice issue and the profundity of the first line to you controlling your own destiny, economic and otherwise, is the choices you are allowed to make about your reproductive destiny. And so until it's profoundly felt in the core of humanity that reproductive rights are human rights, it's going to be something that is passed off to other people to fight and not look into the profundity of it. Do you think the fact that the Supreme Court hangs in balance the way that it does right now, that that's going to activate more people, that people will get more interested? I think they are more interested than they ever have been now. I don't know why it took now. It's so easy to put things off until they're they're a problem right in front of you. Right. But they've been a problem in front of people everywhere. You know, we started Lady Parts Justice in 2012. When I watched model legislation created by an extremist group called Americans United for Life that are sort of the American Legislative Council, ALEC, they serve that sort of purpose for only issues around abortion and birth Mm. control. So they created a piece of model legislation and dropped it in 27 state legislatures all at once. And then clinics started closing. And that's when I, I'd always been active, but that's when I dug my heels in to find out we need to get people interested in state legislatures midterm elections, really having them understand what the issues that they care about. So often it's a state 
thing. And how often have all of us walked into a voting booth and said, I'm not sure which councilman I want. I don't don't know which state senator. That's changing dramatically. In fact, I was just reading today that registration and interest in voting is up 21% from 2014. There are things to be hopeful about. There are things to be hopeful about for sure. And I think people are waking up. I think that privileged white women like myself, a lot of them were like, oh yeah, I used to go to Planned Parenthood when I was in college. Even people who care stepped out and said, it's not my issue anymore. For a lot of people, low-income people, especially women of color, who use these clinics like Planned Parenthood, like independent providers, sometimes as their only source of care, you got to care about them. You can, nobody can be an I got mine, so I'm moving on situation. There is no cul-de-sac for the uterus to move into and kick back and check out. That's the case across the board politics. So people are interested in the issues that directly impact them. That's, yeah. that's what causes people to vote. That's But, but and this is the problem, yeah. is that... There's not a person on the planet who doesn't love someone with mm-hmm. a uterus. Who hasn't been in or around a uterus at some point. You know, and so that directly impacts you. Yeah. You know, laws that decide to govern the sovereignty of another person's body affects you. And so for people to, it kind of goes back to what I was saying before, for people to not understand that, I think that's why we're here. Because it's just, let's talk about something else. I think everyone would love to talk about something else. But the fear of forced parenthood or the fear of being somebody who might not make a lot of money and might want to have a kid and who's looking for help, you know, to raise a family. When that rug is pulled out from under you, we don't honor families. When people say, oh, all these people care about is the fetus. They don't even care about the fetus because when that fetus is born, you have cut programs for that fetus to have a life. Um that uh, if if the parents or the mother uh, or the person having the child needs some help. If you can look at images of children in cages and not be taken aback by it, that's a pretty good sign that you've kind of given up well, once the baby has exited the well, body. Yeah, and what's crazy is, you know, we do this massive tour every summer where we travel around the country. We do comedy and music shows. Yeah. And then we have a talk back with providers and activists in in small towns. And we're not going to San Francisco and Seattle. We're going to Charleston, West Virginia and Little Rock and Jackson and Detroit and Wichita. Like we're going in and we're growing the activist bases with our audience. They sign up and then they help the, cl- the local clinic and the activists with legislation and, and help them raise morale. And they do some TLC with the, with the workers and yeah. sign up to be clinic workers and stuff. And at every stop of the way, we went to 14 clinics this summer. Every stop of the way, when I asked the protesters outside of the clinics, I was like, why is it that you're not in Texas? And they say, it's not my issue. And for me, that's like, wow. When you're coming into their neighborhood and talking about these issues, is there some pushback from the community? The haters are going to always say, why are you here? But our purpose isn't to go in and talk to the community about how they should deal with abortion or what they should do. Our role is, hey, you want to know what? I can draw 300 people into a room and they'll come and hear my show. When I then in turn facilitate a conversation with the providers in that community and the activists who are working in that community with the community to have them talk to their own community about their needs, I'm not telling anybody anything. I'm a lot, I'm giving them the stage and centering them to talk about their needs. And then the people sign up to work with them. And so that's the part that I feel like is really cool, is that there's no better advocate, an abortion provider, and an activist who's working right there in the community. But as everybody knows who does any activist work, if you, when you send out an email and you have a meetup, sometimes you get 10 or 15 people to come. If you have a comedy show and those people come, your meetup is 300 people. And then it's up to you 
to tell the compelling narrative about what you need from the community and how they can help. And so to listen to them be able to do that, it's so great. Like that's a really easy ask for me and for a lot of performers who are like, I'm so busy. If somebody would just orchestrate a situation where I can fly in, do a show and fly out and know that that's going to make a difference, I would do that. And I was like, that's why I started this whole thing. Cause yeah. I was like, Hey, I can be that person. I'm a producer and a comic and I care and I can reach out to these people. And they're really great because they, it's like, thank you for not being some stupid northerner coming in and being like, what's going on here? Why don't you guys just move? And you meet these cool people who grew up in these towns. Yeah. It's just, it's basically when shitty politicians happen to good people. That's what happens. Then for them to even look around a room and see people that they didn't know were in their community. And then for even people who provide reproductive care to have their community applaud for them when all they hear day in and day out is horrible protesters chanting at them. It's really nice to be able to provide this reset of support. Was your comedy political from the beginning? The first five years it wasn't, but basically I started doing comedy in around 19... 19- 83. What's an example of an early pre-political joke? Oh, early pre-political joke. Ever notice when you play Monopoly with bald guys, they always pick the hat? I think there should be a law that male Great Danes should have to wear underwear in public. I went to college for four years, studied philosophy, I think. Therefore, I'm single. You're sort of circling around (laughs) it a little bit there, though. So those are like some of my oldies but goodies. I always cared about politics. And I was always considered myself a feminist and self-identified. So I talked about women being portrayed in the media and sexism I would sprinkle in. And then it was really the first Gulf War where the transition of me talking about politics really happened. So since about 1991, I've been like that person. But we do need these sort of external things to happen in the world in order to make us political, to make us wake up and realize how wrong things are in the world. And everybody has their way of connecting with somebody to get them to listen. And sometimes there's intersections. There's some people who might listen to PBS and they might love what I do. But then there's people who might never listen to PBS and only listen to me. And then there's people who listen to PBS and say, I don't like you. You swear too much. Mm -hmm. So I think that comedy can be a bridge for people to get them engaged. But the thing for me is just telling political comedic jokes kind of wasn't enough because I get people riled up and then they'd be like, what do I do? It was like an anger fluffer. You're giving them rage boners. Yes. And so then, and then, so when I realized when people kept saying, well, what should I do? I was like, I could probably figure out how to say, here's some ideas. My thought was, can I come up with an organization that has a core group of people who work at the organization, brings in interesting people from creative backgrounds to use them as a draw, use them as just like a really fun, Mm environment and then also to have meetups we have meetups and then by example people can replicate what we do so that if you're an accountant you could still be part of lady parts justice we try to through our own work create toolkits for folks so they can also do it so if you've got 15 minutes three hours or a day or a week you can insert yourself into the activism it took you a while to get there, though. It took a oh, my gosh. It took me. Yeah. I mean, because you're just trying to pay your bills and, yeah. and do your life and also figure out where it is you want to be. I think yeah. oftentimes things find you. And I know, I mean, I started this. I had um, 
I had a piece of downtime where I was off of a show. I did this kooky MSNBC show with Connie Chung and Maury Povich. And then I did an off-Broadway show. And then I got asked to write a book. And I couldn't work and write a book. And so I decided I would take a sabbatical and write the book. And then that's when all these laws started happening. And that's when I was like, what am I going to do after the book? Maybe this is what I'm going to do after the book is try to create something that combines my activism and the comedy and making funny videos. So you were always a stand-up? Yeah. I I was going to be a history teacher. (laughs) And then um, I dropped out of college. Yeah. Um, You could have been the funny history teacher. I could have been the funny history teacher. And then somebody dared me to do stand-up in college. And literally from the day that I did it, I thought it was the greatest thing ever. I'm the youngest of five kids. You never get to say anything when you're the youngest of five kids. And so there was this magical – and people always like, I had an epiphany, but I kind of did, where I was on stage and nobody was interrupting me for five minutes while I was talking. And then they kind of laughed at what I had to say. And I was like, this seems fun. Can this be a job for me? Let me see if it is. And then I went back to the open mic the second time and I did terribly. For some reason, in spite of having no preparation and no good jokes, the first one – is often very good for people. And then it's just, you know, downhill for a while. Well, after no, that. I think part of it is that people root for you yeah. and then your adrenaline can carry you. Some comics are joke machines and not particularly funny mm-hmm. off stage. Some comics are great conversationalists and can just be funny. Like it's the difference between somebody who's good on a chat show like Bill Maher sure. and then just somebody who's like a straight joke teller. And so if you have a little bit of personality in you, your first time you can like skate by. And I think that's what happens. Do you feel like you're basically you on stage? A hundred percent. It's yeah. I have not been that funny in this interview. I know this to be true. We have been talking about abortion laws. It's, it's tough. Right. To... Well, not re- you know, you can be funny yeah. about abortion and you should be because like whenever people are like, Oh, how can you make abortion funny? It's like the first thing you do is Decide what your narrative about abortion is. If I was to buy the the narrative of the other side, why would I be making jokes about baby killing? But I don't believe it's baby killing because it's not. Therefore, I can I can make jokes about my own abortion and the morons who actually create scenarios around abortion that are crazy. You know, when literally state senators stand on the floor, a guy in Idaho stood on the floor of the state senate and said. I just want to know why women can't just swallow a camera to get a gynecological exam. People being idiots about it is good source material. People being idiots about it and also just looking at the landscape of there's many reasons why people have abortion. Some people have one and they went to their appointment and they went back to work and that's their life. Some people have tragic stories around their abortions and have complicated feelings about it. You know, there's not one narrative. Mm But um, when we start talking about and say things like no one's pro-abortion and, you know, at least we should have abortion in the cases of rape and incest, that's setting up really stigmatizing narratives about good abortions and bad abortions and, and who's to decide that. The person having it is the person who should decide that. I often say there's no good abortion, there's no bad abortion, there's just the one you need. And if you talk to anybody who's had one, They'll probably agree with you. Did you consider yourself to be an activist the entire time? I think so. I mean, I got pregnant the first time I ever had sex when I was in high school. And so I had an abortion all by myself. I had a creepy, abusive boyfriend. 
Um, I couldn't tell my parents. I was brought up Catholic. It was 1978. Did that just fuck up sex for you for a long time? It didn't. No, not even with the, the stigma of having grown up a Catholic? You know, I think I put off having sex because I was Catholic. And then I had it. And then I think because the person was abusive and I didn't know how to get out of that relationship, the only thing I did know was that if I was to have a kid with this person, I would never get out. And so for me, the drive to make sure that when I could figure out how to get out, I would be able to was stronger than any other drive. And then so I feel like that trumped a lot of stuff also. So my parents found out because I, uh, I was short money when I went to get, when I went to have my abortion. And then they billed my parents for $30. And then the bill came. And then it was like this nightmare where I had to go talk to the priest. And the priest said to me, everybody sins and I don't believe you're going to hell. I can't give you communion anymore. I'm more worried about how you feel. That is surprisingly progressive. Unbelievable. And I think that was also something that gave me permission to feel feelings about who I was and my choice that I made. And I told the priest like that I was with this horrible boy. He didn't tell my mom. And he goes, let's just tell your mom that we had this conversation. I'll tell her that God forgives you. Um, I believe God. Was this Jesus? I know, right? No, this man was really crazy. Cool. And I was like, great. And so that part was so crazy and Mm. cool. Were you political prior to that? How much did that shape your politics? Well, you know, it's interesting because politics were talked about in my house all the time. I have this crazy family where my dad is from Philadelphia, Mississippi. And for those of you who don't know about Philadelphia, Mississippi, it is where the Mississippi burning murders happened. And then he got drafted into World War II, met my mom, who is from Minnesota in Washington, D.C., and then he moved to Minnesota. I'm the youngest of five kids. My siblings were like protesting the Vietnam War and my parents were Goldwater conservatives and Reagan conservatives. So there was always conversations around my yeah. dinner table. My dad loved Nixon, loved Reagan. But you're not the only kid who turned out to be a lefty. No. I have three lefties, one Obama Democrat, and my brother. <laughs> He's sort of a Bloomberg independent. Okay. And he's also the mayor of Bloomington, Minnesota, which is hilarious because when I go on MSNBC or I'm shooting my mouth off someplace, he'll text me and be like, my inbox is full of people calling you the C word. Do I need to open my email or can you just tell me what you said? And I'm like, here's what I said. And yeah. he's like, oh, okay. Like, So he gets so much shit for my behavior. And it's sort of hilarious. How do the Goldwater conservative parents react to you becoming not only a comedian, but a a lefty political comedian? They were so funny because my dad said to me one time that I raised you to have an opinion. I forgot to tell you it was supposed to be mine. (laughs) Um, And so I think, yeah, it was great. I think they were really proud. I mean, when we launched The Daily Show, they had a segment on it for the first year. My parents did um, where they um, they would give Final Jeopardy. One would give the answer and then one would give the question. And uh, and so they thought that was really fun. I think my dad liked the fact that I would match wits with him. And I think he liked to fight with me because he thought I was smart. We would play Jeopardy together. That was our detente. If you're playing Jeopardy with somebody and that person's answering questions, they can't call you dumb, right? 
And so we had to fight in another way politically. I studied history partially because I wanted to figure out what my dad's experience was in World War II because he never talked about it. He was in the 1st Marine Division at Guadalcanal. And, you know, they were left for dead. And so, you know, when you find out that so many young, poor boys were left to fight with World War I equipment, put someplace to die, it gives you a real insight into why they're war hawks. You know, why my dad was constantly fighting for this bloated military budget, you know, and it's like, you don't know what it's like to be left there. You know, rationally, we're not there anymore. But if you think about the perspective of somebody who lived through that. I don't want to demonize these old war dudes, but how do we get them retired and elect people who are not warmongers? Because if you're legislating from a place of survival, nobody helped you get past and work through and get to a place, you know, when a lot of those guys got out of World War II, there wasn't programs for them. Some people got a house, but there was no place to emotionally figure your shit out. PTSD was not identified. I mean, they were denying that PTSD existed in 2004. Still, you know, it wasn't something that was treated. And so we kind of left them to be emotionally fragile. At a certain point, it's just impossible to change a mind or to get people to evolve politically. No, I think you can get people to evolve for sure. I just think depending on the issue, depending what happens, I personally feel like in focusing on Abortion, if I'm going to change somebody's mind, it's going to be through telling story and, and humanizing. But there's, but most of the time, that doesn't even change some people's minds who are dug in really hard. Because if you believe abortion is murder, I'm not going to be able to convince you otherwise, right? If you believe life begins at conception and that's your, you deny any kind of fetal development, pregnancy, science around pregnancy, I'm just a murderer and I'm advocating for murder, right? And so for me, through our work and through showing people the relentless assault and and how it really affects people in the larger scope of things, I can get people who have been complacent or stagnant back into the fight. Most people, to some degree, you can probably convince them of some of the benefits of socialism or healthcare. But you're right. There's just a certain there's probably a certain percentage of the population that will just never be convinced otherwise. So you yeah. just have to focus on the people who are. The large voting block of people who don't vote. And if you can create a space for people to get information in a way that their option would be never getting the information, yeah. I'm super for that. You know, that's why we do so much intersecting of entertainment and politics. You know, we do this massive award show called the Golden Probes, Mm -hmm. you know, that we're doing here in New York on October 20th at Town Hall. And then it's going to be a big live stream with the other 98% and on goldenprobes.com. And we have... That was very slick, by the way. Thank you. But we take some of the state legislators and we use their words and put them in these beautiful filmatic presentations so it looks like it's a clip from a movie and you hear their names and a celebrity's nominating them in a category like best original science and then you hear five yeah. people who are saying stuff that's crazy you're like oh my god this isn't just one or two kooks this is who's running our country and who's running our states and i think for me that's super important to remind people that it's not just one or two weirdos it's actually a movement of people who have an ideology that is so far removed from anything that is sane. When you literally say abortion is why the Parkland murders happened, 
you're like, oh my God, you know, porn is the reason that there was Parkland. And it's like, yeah. what are you talking about? Or 9-11. Or 9-11. Or, you know, yeah. feminists and lesbians and everybody's caused 9-11 except for our foreign policy and how that affects things. In the earliest days of The Daily Show, did that feel like a platform for potentially getting some of these ideas across? When we created it, The Daily Show was a space that was satirizing and created to satirize the media as much as the people in the media. And so when we launched, we were satirizing the media that existed. It was in 1996 we launched and there was only CNN. And then we launched in July, the end of July, MSNBC launched. And then in October, Fox launched. So when we were crafting the Daily Show, what was really permeating the news was um, there were 17 news magazines. So it was like, your mattress, what you don't know, might kill you. Like every five minutes, it was like Dateline and Faceline and Face-to-Face and Eye-to-Eye and Street Store. I mean, it was insane. But then... CNN, instead of reporting on news, basically, it was the trial of the century of the week. You know, it was OJ and the Menendez and all that stuff. They were filling up time for a a long time. Filling up time. And if people will remember, when MSNBC launched, Ann Coulter had a show with Laura Ingram, I think, and Alan Keyes had a show. Michael Savage had a show. It was like proto-Fox News. Garbage. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so, and then their evening lineup, remember for a long time, it was Scarborough Country, Tucker Carlson. Yeah, all the Um, greats. Yeah. So, you know, it was crazy to think about that. And so we were really showing people, this is the media you're given. Don't necessarily, please read more. We were satirizing the kind of news. As the 24-hour news cycle happened, and those three channels happened- then we we followed their trends and kind of just mocked and did what they did. You know, when we launched The Daily Show first, we would always lead with the most mundane bullshit story. And then it was like, and in other news, you know, and then it would be like the biggest story that should have been on the radar. I'm trying to remember where Comedy Central was at around like 96. I mean, did it feel like lower stakes at the time? Were you able to play around with the format? The format, we launched with the format. The only thing that was different, we launched without an audience because we thought that the audience at home should decide when it was funny. But the show was so subtle that we're like, no, we need an audience. That lasted a week. And I was the one that pushed for no audience. And after a week, I was like, audience. We're getting an audience. Like, I don't know what I was thinking. I was having some kind of... I get that impulse. It's that sort of like uh, soundtracks are really cheesy. And there's not an audience in the news. Yeah. So my thought was, if we're going to be doing a satire of the news... And doing field packages, and we want to make sure that people aren't like, it's just basically 22 minutes of weekend update, then we really need to make sure it's not. And then it was like, we're not like weekend update at all. We have footage. You know, weekend update didn't even start using footage until recent-ish time. They had an audience. They had an audience. So we're like, we have to have an audience, people laughing and stuff. And so, and so, you know, it was South Park launched Shortly after we did. What made you move on from there? You know, a couple things. I think it was a comedy channel first and foremost. So if you wanted to blow out what you were doing, it always had to be jokety joke, joke, joke all the time. And I think that's why when you look at 
where Sam B landed or John Oliver landed, Wyatt Cenac landed. They were given some freedom to mix the serious with the funny. They're all still very joke heavy. Yes, but there is no way on a Comedy Central show that you could talk 22 minutes about net neutrality. You think the sort of the, the apex of the show, the popularity and, and having Jon Stewart there maybe changed the math a little bit that they were given more freedom or was that always the case? That show's always been independent. It was always sort of this island that had its own little thing. You know, the Comedy Central publicity team would work a little bit, but the show in and of itself had its own atmosphere because it was so different than any other show. You know, it's not anybody can work on that show. It's not like I'm a comedy writer. I'm either want to work on Modern Family or The Daily Show. There's a certain set of or type of person that wants to write for TV and if it, it political satire, you know, you have to just ingest it as your life. Like that's what you do. You yeah. wake up every day and you look at the news, right? And if you take the train and you miss a Trump press conference, right, you're, you're bummed out. You are bummed out. So that's just kind of organically within your skin. What makes those shows great is when you hire people who for years have just been that person and then they're a good comedy writer, they don't have to research every single thing to make a piece happen. It's like, let's compare how many times this person has gone back and forth on um, on an issue. And if you hire the right person, they know four to six off the top of their head. Then you research the other three, but you can start writing it and get it out faster because somebody is an encyclopedia, a news junkie. Then they know how to write funny stuff. Then they know how to write funny stuff for that particular mm -hmm. show. It's a really hard fit sometimes. It's, it's that Venn diagram yeah. right in the center. And of it thing. doesn't mean that there's not a jillion funny people yeah. in the world, but that narrow scope of somebody who can do that relentless grind every day and be able to take in, like you said, toxic information mm -hmm. every day and then spew it back out. I mean, speaking of relentless grind, I assume that your Air America years must have been really tough from that standpoint. I mean, not only are we talking during Bush, but you really just did have to live and breathe that 24 hours. Daily Show was like that. Air America was – I was also the executive vice president. Of programming. And you were just filling and up I had so a, much time. And I had a show for three hours three a day. Three hours, yeah. Whatever happened to that uh, other woman? <sighs> Who knows? Where is she now? That that Mad Owl woman. I don't know. And that Chuck D. Who knows where he is? <laughs> and I realized the thing that was, when you asked me why did you leave The Daily Show, you know, one of the other things was, you work those shows, you were literally working like 14-hour days, 14 yeah. to 16-hour days. After years of that, like the one thing that had to go was my stand-up. Like, I couldn't do it. I mm. couldn't write for myself. I couldn't perform. I just needed the energy to wake up every day and do it. And so I realized that I don't necessarily need stand-up to be my driving force of what I do, but I need it in my life to be whole. And so after Air America, I decided to pick projects that allowed me to have the energy and time to also do stand-up when I felt like I wanted to. And that was really important for me. And that's made me feel a lot better. So when I did the Off-Broadway show and I worked on the Maury and Connie show and doing this project that I've done since 2012, it's been really nice to be able to do stand-up when I want to and do stand-up on the road and, and then write and produce as well. And then, you know, be an activist too. I'm sure that this is something that you've gone over and had a lot during those days and since, but I mean, why are leftists, why are progressives not drawn to talk radio in the same way that conservatives are? There's been sort of studies about, like, how people function yeah. in the world. And 
conservatives are attracted to fear and liberals are attracted to hypocrisy through humor. So hypocrisy through fear is slightly different than hypocrisy through humor. It's like there's very few really funny conservative comedians. I think this is something that that Sam still does really well on on his show is sort of taking some of those learnings from conservative talk radio, but obviously everything is still through the lens of humor. I mean, you know, you had Al Franken on there, you had, you know, Marin, you had very funny comedians. Everything was, or most of the things on the channel were still filtered through comedy. Yeah. I mean, and that's the whole thing is that when we set up the format of Air America, we wanted to make sure as best we could that throughout the broadcast day, there was somebody giving, it was sort of like a pod. It was Mark Marin. And Mark Riley, and Mark mm-hmm. Riley was the journalist and yeah. the broadcaster. Mark Marin was the comedian, and so it was almost you could have call and response right on the show. You could talk about an issue, and on each show, we wanted we wanted to have that kind of dynamic where I often said I was as smart as Rachel was funny, and Rachel was as funny as I was smart, and that was that's a nice thing. Catherine and and Al had a had a great rapport. Because there, Catherine was the journalist, and you know Al was the foil for that. Um, and then um, Randy Rhodes was a traditional yeah. talk radio host mm. with a progressive viewpoint. Yeah. I don't know that I would agree with the premise necessarily. That why is it that talk radio on the left doesn't do well? I would say Air America failed because the people who launched it were liars and cheats. So they set up a Ponzi scheme, and we all were in. Yeah. It. And so it was successful. I mean, you look mm. at where, where Marin is, where Sam Cedar is, yeah, where yeah, Rachel yeah. Maddow is, where Chuck D is, you know, you're like, oh, look at all those people that went on to do things. And this is what really sent them into the ether. Do you have the ability to tune out from time to time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. It's hard when you run an organization because you want to check in constantly. And when you're working with young people who are really creative and learning sort of the politics of not about abortion, but the politics of who's got the, who's got the ability to take your words and turn them into something else. You want to make sure that you're guiding them as much as you can, right? And so when you decide you're going to use humor to expose the hypocrisy in the reproductive rights movement, there's a lot of people counting you not to get it wrong. The clinics are counting on you not to get it wrong. The patients are counting on you not to get it wrong. Everybody involved in it are counting on you to not get it wrong. They don't care if the right wing hates you because the right wing just hates you. And the right wing is counting on you to get it wrong. Well, and what's interesting is when the right wing writes about with outrage about what my organization does, every time they write about it, I'm like, why can't we get an article written just like that? They describe every single thing we do exactly as we would hope the most amazing profile in the New Yorker would. We always marvel at that internally when it's like, they've just said exactly what we do and we're really proud of what we do and they think it's crazy. And so that psychological study of somebody pounding out an article that they're like, this is crazy. Our re-, and then the comments that the readers are right, like these people seem like they're nuts. And it's like, wow, how could two, it's like Rashomon. Yeah. Two yeah. people see the exact same thing. We're like, yes. And they're like, what? Were you in New York when Trump was elected? Yes. Were you walking around the city the, sort of the day after? I was. Everyone was just like had the 
a rain cloud above their heads. Yeah, we had an election party at the sort of Lady Parts Justice. We all got together and had a party, an election party. And, and then about nine o'clock at night. Oh, my God. Literally, somebody took a shit in the bathtub where we had the party. Somebody just, like, drank too much and couldn't handle it anymore. It's such a good metaphor, though. It was, I know. But it was so what, – because we were so convinced. And my team is really creative. Kat Greenbilt, my, yeah. my, my co-partner at Lady Parts Justice, she built a wine fountain. It was Trump's massive face. It must have been four feet in circumference. And she poked the eyes out. And put hoses through the eyes, and then the wine was going into a fountain so we could drink through his tea. So we drank his tears, and we were like, this is hilarious. He's crying, and we're drinking. And then everybody was so drunk. And I remember I was like, at like 7.30, I was like, it's fine. The other counties haven't reported yet. Don't be stupid. And then I was like, oh, my God. How did this happen? You have to take a couple days off and rethink life. The thing for me was because I wasn't like sitting around and then motivated because Trump got elected. Like that's how a lot of activism is happening right now. I was motivated in 2012. And so having an organization in place Mm. to respond. And also, I mean, we had 600 people sign up to volunteer two days after the election. In the Women's March, we decided to stay in New York because – I didn't really understand. I mean, I was glad that people went to D.C. It was incredible. But from our vantage point, um, the people who don't have money to travel to D.C., the people whose lives are going to be profoundly affected by what is happening, needed locally a place to go. What we did was we got a ballroom at a hotel right on the parade or the march route Mm -hmm. in New York. And... We asked 15 different nonprofits to table, and the only requirement we had was you could ask for money, but you had to have something at your table and a person at your table that was encouraging people to sign up and physically put themselves into an activist space. And then we had a conversation with a bunch of women of color about intersectional feminism and what it meant. And we had 20,000 people come through our activist fair. It meant that differently abled people had a place to come if they couldn't march. It meant that people didn't feel like I can't be part of it because I I can't buy a bus ticket and go to Washington, D.C., but I can go to this place and have a cup of coffee for free and walk around this cool activist fair and then march. And then, as we all know, there was like a bazillion people marching everywhere. But we had 6,500 people march with us under our banner when we, before the election, had maybe 5,000 people on our mailing list, we had 6,500 people just in New York marching with us. The mar- it was crazy. When something like that happens, when the worst person in the world is elected to be the president. Yeah. As, as it happens. Yeah. How do you not completely succumb to hopelessness? How do you get back on the horse after that? I had to curb my anger. Mm. At people who had been complacent all this time and people who it took Trump to give a shit about anything. And I had to find a place to put that away yeah. and then embrace people who took you this long, but here you are. Yeah. Let's do it, right? So I guess I don't feel hopeless because I see more people who are activated, caring about progressive politics and progressive issues um, than I did with just like people who were active and they were just sort of 
party hacks. When I look at what's happening now and I see if the Democratic Party tries to take one bit of credit for this movement that is occurring, they can go fuck themselves. Like, seriously, they didn't do it. It was the citizens who formed these indivisible groups and the citizens who emerged from this to say, I would like to be a leader. And I aligned and I align close enough with the Democratic Party, but I want to change what that is because I want to see myself in it. And so when you see these women of color running and men of color running and women, and it's like when the Virginia State House almost completely shifts and they elect a trans woman to replace the state rep who proposed the bathroom bill. That's incredibly powerful. There you go. That was Liz Winstead returning to the show after about four years. Good catching up with her. Thanks to her for taking the time to do that. You can check out Lady Parts Justice at ladypartsjustice.com. She very smoothly and slyly added into the conversation there. The Golden Probes are coming up as well. Those will be happening Saturday, October 20th at Town Hall in New York City and going online on the 28th. You can check that out at goldenprobes.com. Thanks to Liz. Thanks to Kat and the Reverend Jen for helping set up that conversation. Thanks to you guys as always for listening to the show if you like the program there are a number of ways to support us you can uh, rate and review us on itunes or google Podcasts or spotify we are now on spotify as of this week or if you happen to get your podcasts like us on facebook if you've got any feedback it's rlcast at gmail.com follow us on tumblr that's rlcast.tumblr.com that is the first and best place to get all of your riyl related information and i think that's about it for this week so stick around because we will be back just about this time next week with another episode of RIYL.